we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount and listening to the words of Christ and what He has to say. And you might be looking at the title here and thinking about what the subject might be and say, well, that, that might not specifically be applicable to me. Well, I want you to pay careful attention to what Jesus says here on this matter. Because if anything that you struggle with any sin, uh, this is going to be applicable to you. You need to know it. You need to listen to it. You need to listen to the words of Christ and what he says on the matter. And all of Jesus' teachings, we get the love of Christ in them and his instructions there. And what we learn from this in the Beatitudes in the very beginning in Matthew 5 and verse 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We want hearts that are pure, that are filled with the word of God. We want the Word of God and recognizing who He is and our Creator and His great love, and as we, as we see magnified in the love of Jesus Christ, to be a part of who we are. And I think every one of us would say, I want a pure heart. You don't want a heart that carries around evil and wickedness and grudges and slander and any other kind of wickedness of, of coveting. Those things need to be set aside. We want hearts that are pure. And if you're a Christian and you've been baptized into Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells within you, that is something that you desire right down to your core. That's who you are. And you want that pure heart. And so we, before we get into our study and look at this a little bit further in Matthew chapter 5, I ask that you pray with me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessings upon us right now, that our minds and our hearts are focused upon your word. The Father, in your great and uh, powerful word and all sufficiency and wisdom will affect us and change us. The Father, we will take the things that we hear from the teaching of Jesus Christ and allow them to affect us now, to be with us, and that we'd carry these things with us throughout the rest of this week and our thoughts, and that it will uh, be with us for the rest of our life. Uh, Father, again, we ask that you help us, that we we grow steadfast and diligent in studying the truth so that we will stand for what's right, that we'll stand with the integrity and holiness that you give us so that we can share the truth with others. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to get our Bibles and uh, go over to Matthew chapter 5 and look at verses 27 to 30. So I was looking at this study. I, I do extend it. We're going to go another two verses, uh, but n- not right here. We'll get to the other two verses in a moment. But we're going to draw some observations out of Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. And uh, you may see some things that I don't, so I encourage you to get your Bible out and read right there, and we'll go through there. Again, our bulletin gives a brief outline of these. These are observations that I'm making from the text, that I'm drawing from the text, and I hope that we share the same. All right, Matthew chapter 5, 27 and following. So Jesus has been preaching, and we've covered a number of things. We've covered the Beatitudes. We looked at Christ saying that he came not to abolish or destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And now he's bringing up portions of the law and the prophets, and he's quoting them. He says, you have heard that it's said. And so last week we looked at, you heard that it's said, you shall not murder. And what does Jesus do to that? He fills up that law, and he says, not only should you not murder, but he addresses the heart. He says, you shouldn't be wrathful to your brother. You shouldn't call him or say raka to him, you empty-headed, dumb person. And you shouldn't call him, as it says in Greek, a moron, or as it's translated, a fool. Don't call anybody that. And so he is a re- he's doing a revision and filling up the Old Testament here. And the next thing we have here is, again, he brings out another of those things that's written in the Ten Commandments, and it says, you shall not commit adultery. So we're going to read that section and draw from it. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, 
to those of our ancestors from the very beginning. He says, you shall not commit adultery. Again, that's the seventh of the Ten Commandments. He says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. There's a lot there in that that text to think about, to contemplate, to say, what is, what is Christ saying there? What is communicating? But in the very beginning, it seems pretty clear that what his instruction is to us. But we want to slow down and we want to make sure that we're understanding this. So these are my observations. And I'd like to hear yours as well. But this is what we see here. First of all, we have Christ noting and quoting the seventh of the Ten Commandments. Again, you shall not commit adultery. And adultery is to sin against uh, your spouse with having sexual relations with somebody else. That's the, you, there's no other way to put it. That's the way it means in Greek. That's what it means in English. And that's the meaning of it. You know, and some people might want to try to alter that and distort it. That is the meaning of it. It's a physical act. Now, Jesus goes deeper than that, doesn't he? He goes to a, a greater level on that. And so the next thing we see here is that Jesus taught that anyone who looks, notice that. Notice what Jesus is emphasizing there. Someone might take away from this and say, well, I'm not supposed to lust. But what does Jesus say here? He says uh, to every man, and this would be applicable to women as well, but specifically for men, I think it is, that they are not to what? Not to look. Don't look. That's why he then has a hyperbolic statement there, that if your eye causes you you to sin, then to pluck it out. It's an exaggeration, and he's trying to make a point, and it's very important for us to think about that. So he says here, you're not to look to lust. The Greek word is epithumia. It means to have great desire for it. And so as you were to follow this Greek word throughout the rest of the New Testament, you're going to see it translated mostly as don't covet, or you shall not covet. The Tenth Commandment that we read about in Romans chapter 7 and verse 9. And so when it's the same word here of you shall not covet. He says, do not look at another woman. First of all, don't look. And don't look how? With the intention of coveting her. Or another way of translating the word is desiring. And, and, I, and it gets the meaning very well in our translation when it says not to lust for her. I think some people have different definitions, and I've heard this, some peculiar definitions of the word lust. Well, lust means um, an unnatural desire. No, 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 this, is a, this is, would be a desire of a man toward a woman that would um, you know, initially be what, what someone would consider natural. Of course, if it's beyond marriage, it's not what God wants you to do. And so it's, it's not that idea of lust. It's not, a, it's not strictly... Um, you know, a distorted or creepy or perverted thing like that. But it is in the sense of a desire and a covet that is contrary to God's design. That God wants you to desire, for man to desire his own wife. And so what Jesus says here is, is not only is it the commandment, do not commit adultery, but don't even look, don't even look how to covet, to desire another woman. And if you do, you've already committed adultery where? It's not actual adultery, but it's adultery in the heart. And that there's a heart problem here. 
And so the, the application to us is this, this applies to every sin. If there's something that's tempting me, that I am craving and I am desiring, that I am coveting, that I am focused on, that I am wanting intensely, that I'm giving my thoughts to it, that I fascinate on it, that would lead me away if I could actually get my hands to it, if I, if I could actually do that thing, then that is sin in the heart. And as he says here, you've already committed adultery in the heart. And a great way to prevent and stay, to prevent adultery and to stay faithful in your marriage is what? To make your heart right. To make it right. That you not have this in your heart. And so what we would do is we'd read God's Word and we'd pray to God and we would, we would be wanting to have the words of Christ in our life so that we don't have those kind of desires. When our desires are the desires of the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5, verse 16, 17, those are going to be counter and at war against the desires of the flesh. We want those desires within us. As then Christ goes on here, he says of those desires of coveting and wanting, again, his emphasis is that it starts at the heart. If I want to prevent and keep myself from a certain sin, what am I going to do? There are certain things I can do. And Jesus says one thing is, is that not, not just don't do the sin, but don't put yourself in a position where you would even look to do the sin, and then to treat what? The heart. And so you're, you're addressing it on two different places. You're addressing the fact that, all right, here's the sin. I'm going to make sure that I don't even look to commit the sin. And I'm going to focus on my heart being filled with God's word. And he says in this, we go to the extreme. Um, and he uses a hyperbole here, an exaggeration. And he stresses that if your eye causes you to sin, if your hand causes you to sin, to remove it. And so what's the application for us is this, is that I'm going to remove any means of anything that's going to lead me to sin. So when I look at my life and I say I'm being tempted by this, I've struggled with this sin in the past, I'm going to make sure that I'm not in the place and around the certain people that are going to cause me to sin. I'm not going to be in a place where I'm going to be tempted to look for it or I'm going to be desiring it. And I'm going to be in the place where I'm going to take God's word and fill up my mind and my heart. And where's that going to be? Where am I going to go where I'm going to get the truth of the Scriptures, where I'm going to get encouragement and accountability from other Christians? What's going to be with other Christians is going to be in the church, in the gathering of brethren. And that's what we need. And so as Christ is saying here, He says, you will do anything to remove this sin. You ever felt that way about a certain temptation or sin in your life? I want to cut this off. I want to remove it. I hate it. I detest the sin. We have to have that feeling. We have to abhor evil, as the Scriptures tell us to. Abhor evil. We, we hate the actual act of doing wickedness and sin. And so we detest it, we want to remove it. I think another thing to hear, that observation about the text that Jesus is saying, is He says, there's a cost. There's a great cost. You know? And that sounds like a lot, a lot to lose an eye or lose a hand. It's going to feel like a lot. But that cost of removing sin, it's far better. It's far less than being cast into hell. And Jesus preached more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. He spoke more about it and he warned, warned against it. And he spoke at it in love. He said, listen, if you rebel against God and you separate yourself from God, you're going to go into eternity separated from Him. There's no more comforts from Him. There's no more blessings from Him. It's going to be a torment, a fire. And then as Jesus stresses here, that state of hell, He says it will be physical. 
When Christ returns, Jesus warns, and He says this in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. He says, don't fear Him who can kill your body, but fear Him who can cast body and soul into hell. See, hell is not just the home of, of wicked and rebellious and sinful soul or spirit. It's the home of the body and soul of the wicked. It is a physical, meaning bodily, existence. And we want to avoid it. And so again, we see here, Jesus spoke of hell as a physical Reality. So as we pay attention to what Christ is saying here in his sermon, you can see why this is the greatest sermon ever told, as as many would say, because it convicts us. It gets right down to the heart of sin. It tells us what the cost of it is. And in Christ, in his love, he's warning us. He's he's sending us in in the direction in which we should go. So Jesus' words, again, he's fulfilling the law. He's filling it up. He has revisioned it. He's addressing the heart. He's addressing the initial actions that leads a man to look to covet another woman. And Christ teaches that the cost to overcome temptation and sin would often be great. They're gonna, it's going to feel great. It's going to feel as though you're having to remove a part of yourself in this. Yes. And we should be willing to do it. I don't want this sin. I don't want this thing, this parasite within me draining me and taking from me and separating from me from my Creator and separating me from Christ. I want to remove it, whatever the cost. When Jesus was in the garden the night of His betrayal, when he was, that night when He was arrested, He was with His disciples. And in Matthew's account, He specifically speaks to Peter and He comes back and He's told Peter, James, and John, you stay here. I'm going to go off a little ways. You stay here and pray. And He comes back to Peter and He finds them all sleeping and He says to Peter, watch and pray. He gives them a command. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. And so as a Christian, I want to be the person who is watching and praying. I'm concerned for my heart, but I'm also appealing to God. And he says, lest you enter into temptation. That's, that was what Christ gave to Peter. And then he says this, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And a lot of us will say, well, I'm not going to commit that sin. I won't do that again. And then we're tempted again. It comes before us again. And we wonder what we're going to do about it. And so the weakness of the flesh here, Christ gives warning of it. He says, what you need to do is pray. And, and as we go back to the Sermon on the Mount, we see what he says. He says, you've got to address the heart, the things that you're doing. You've got to make sure that you're doing everything you can to remove it from your life. And it's not, not often e- easy. I think about this as well. When we think about looking to sin... Or in this case, looking to covet or looking to lust. But we want to think about the things that we look at. Your television and your computer screen is often a picture, you know, a window into the world. And you can see things going on in the world. You know, yesterday I watched a lot of football. I got to see a lot of that. That's, and I think that's good. Um, some of the games didn't go the way I wanted to, but it's good. But as I think about that, um, there are also bad things that go along with that. There are other things that come through the television. There are words that are spoken, especially during football games, that I would not go along with. But all kinds of things of the world, evil and detestable things can come through that window as well. We want to be concerned about our families and what we're taking in. It is a window to the world. Good, bad, ugly, everything in between. But it's also a mirror and a reflection of your heart. It tells you, and it's a reflection, what I'm looking at on the screen or on my telephone or on a device is showing a reflection of what is in me, what I'm desiring, what I am coveting, who I am, and it tells me a lot. It's also telling me 
who I worship and what I worship. What do I bow down to? What do I spend my time doing? And so likewise, when we think about this, we might think about our peers as priests. You know, if we're around those who are uh, influencing us to the negative, who are leading us to sin, because bad, bad company corrupts good morals, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Those are like priests leading us in a false worship of something we shouldn't be worshiping. And the places we go are often places like the temples of worship. And you're in the wrong place, looking at the wrong thing with the wrong people. You're worshiping what you should not. You're not worshiping God. So we can ask our question this, ourselves this morning. What do I worship more than God? What do I spend my time on? What do I focus on? Is my heart right? Or am I opening myself up to be tempted? Am I looking at the things that are going to draw me away from my Creator and doing what God would have me to do? I would hope that we'd all agree that most of us would like to worship God more. I want to worship God more. I want to be more focused on Him. I want to think about Jesus more. I want Him to fill up every part of my life. Why? Because I have great joy in that. I have great happiness in that. I don't think about Jesus and His sacrifice and His resurrection and His promises and His great words here, and I'm I'm not discouraged. I'm encouraged by that. I want to follow Him, and I want to draw close to Him, and I want to be close to my Creator at all times. What is it going to take for me to do that? It's going to take where I look and what's in my heart. And that's what Christ is addressing here. What are you doing to remove sin from your life? What are you doing? So Jesus uses strong words there as far as when it comes to strong temptations that we might face. Listen to what Christ says here in Matthew 18, very similar, verses 7 through 9. He says, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. What's he saying here? He's saying, Woe to the man or woman or any person who then tempts other people, who leads other people astray into sin. If you back up one verse before, you open your Bible up and look at verse 6 in Matthew chapter 18. He gives a woe to those who would lead children to stumble and to fall away from God. Children, he says, it would be better that a millstone be hung around their neck and that they be cast into the sea because they lead children astray. We want to make sure that our children are filled up with the truth, with Christ, with the Word, so that when they come face to face with sin, they have a heart that's in the right place. We keep reading this. He says, if, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. There's no record of, of anybody in the Scripture following this literally. We're not meant to take it that way. We're meant to take it as an exaggeration of removing sin. He says, cast it off and, uh, and cut it off and cast it from you. He says, it is better for you to enter into life, to enter into eternal life, lame or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Notice there again, Jesus teaches the same thing from the Sermon on the Mount throughout His ministry, throughout His life. And He's constantly warning, these sins, cut them off, remove them. You don't want any part of everlasting fire. Notice how long that fire lasts. Is it temporary? Is it momentary? He says, everlasting fire. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, again, same book, same gospel, He describes hell as an everlasting fire punishment. So he warns against it and he says this, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you for it's better for you to enter into life. That's the resurrection. Better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Now in the context of the Jewish people, they're thinking of this. 
Well, if I lost the eye or I lost the limb in the resurrection, God will give it back to me. When I have eternal life, God will bless me. I will come to the fullness and I'll be, uh, I have no part in sin and I won't have any of the ailments and problems that I have in this life. That's what we look forward to in eternal life. That's what's been promised to us. And so Jesus is saying here in this life, be willing to take that that's causing you to sin and remove it because it's worth it. It's worth it to be close to God, to be tied with Him, to have eternal life with Him. And you won't want any part of everlasting fire, of Gehenna fire. And that is true. And so this might, be, this might mean removing myself from friends or peers or co-workers. It might mean that I give up my job or my work because I'm in the context of that and that temptation. Um, there are a lot of things that would go along with this. Things that might feel like I'm having to remove a part of my body because the cost of it feels so great at the time. The Scriptures tell us that we are to be separate from the world. We are not to be uh, yoked with wickedness. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 4. We need to learn from these things. I think about this as I'm reading these passages from Jesus. I think about what the Apostle Paul said. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, 13 and 14, he says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness. You know what revelry is. Wild parties, which would have been full of drunkenness and other things. He says, walk properly. To walk properly is not to live and be a part of wild parties and drunkenness. It's not to be a part of lewdness and lust. So the lust would be that coveting of sexual desires that are, that are giving into them. And then lewdness would be any kind of speech that you're saying that is unclean or obscene or anything that any lewdness could also be your behavior and the clothing that you wear. If you're trying to entice others to lust, that's lewdness. He says also not to walk in strife. People who always have drama, who are always fighting, who are always having arguments, no strife. And not in envy, being jealous and always wanting what other people have. He says this is what you do, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires. So his instruction is put on Christ, which in other words would be put Christ upon your heart. Put Him in your life. And secondly, make sure that there's no provision, no way, no way to feed sin, to bring it back in, to, to feed wickedness, to allow it to increase and to grow. We don't want any part of that. He says, so make no provision for the flesh. Looking to covet another is adultery in the heart. But Jesus adds that divorce can cause adultery by another marriage. I want you to listen to what he says here. So Jesus goes from what he's instructing here and he's talking to many of these Pharisees and they're looking to covet. And at that time, a lot of the Pharisees and the teachers at the time were telling people, well, it's wrong for you to have other relations outside of marriage because that's adultery. But if you just don't like your, your spouse, then just divorce them and get another one. And you can divorce them and get another one. And divorce them and get another one. And Jesus says this. Listen to his words. Jesus says this. Matthew chapter 5, 31 to 32. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, whoever separates, divorces, puts her away, literally in the Greek, let him give her a certificate of divorce. What's he quoting? Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 24, where Moses says, if a man's going to divorce his wife, he's got to give her a note, a certificate of divorce. He's got to write it down to put her away. 
But it also says there in Deuteronomy 24 that he is to divorce her for uncleanness. And at that time, there was two schools of thought, and they were debating this. Well, uncleanness might be, well, I don't like her because she didn't cook my food right, or she didn't do something, or she don't like the way that she talks to me. But there was also the other thought that it just meant fornication. Which one is Jesus going to teach? A fornication, sex outside of marriage, adultery, would be the only reason for one uh, to be able to divorce. And this is what Jesus says, that I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, whoever puts away his wife for any reason except sexual morality. Greek word there is porneia. It means extramarital sex. Okay, anything outside of marriage. He says, that is the only reason. He says, and if that man divorces his wife and it's not for that reason, what is he doing? He's causing her to commit adultery. So the man who says, I don't like my wife, I'm going to divorce her. He's causing her to commit adultery when she goes and marries another. He's a cause of it. He's guilty. She's guilty. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. I want you to notice something as well. When it says commits adultery, it's in the present tense. It's continuing on. I've heard some people say, well, I was um, divorced and then I married someone else. And when I married that other person, it was wrong, but I repented from it. But then they say, uh, and, and now, but they stay in the marriage when they're still committing adultery to the previous spouse who is left alone, who's on their own. And so what we see here is Jesus is very clear. Listen to what he says again. He says, but I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual morality causes her to commit adultery. So even though she's in another marriage, she's committing adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. The only exception to that, again, is for sexual morality. Listen to what Jesus says here in Mark chapter 10, 11, verses 12. It gives a little bit more clarity and simplification to this. Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. I thought about doing my own translation here. I went back to the New King James but in the Greek, the word divorces here, divorces his wife, is past tense. The word marries is past tense. The word commits adultery is present tense, ongoing. It says whoever divorces his wife and marries another is committing adultery. And you can translate it that way because it is in the present active sense. All right, and then it says if a woman divorces her husband. So this is Jesus talking. He's, he doesn't want anybody to divorce. Don't divorce. He says, if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she is committing adultery. And so I've heard people before say, well, women back then didn't have the right and the ability to divorce. Well, that's not true. Jesus wouldn't be commanding the women not to divorce. And he's in the context of Jewish women making this instruction not to divorce. They could. I remember reading a record one time of a woman who had been divorced and remarried in Rome 44 times. They had a record of it back then of... um, one of the court records was showing that's, that was the society and the world they lived in. The Pharisees were, and one school of them was teaching people, you can divorce and remarry as much as you want. And they were just as guilty as the person who was cheating on their spouse or never marrying and going from one person to the next. But we see right here what the scripture says. Now, some people would say, wait a minute, I often get this question, so I thought it worth addressing. Can a Christian woman divorce for abuse? What does the Bible say? What does the scripture say on this? Listen to what Paul says here as he speaks the word of the Lord. The apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 10 through 11, 
He says, now to the married, I command. Well, he's an apostle. He can do that. He has authority from God. But then he says, yet not I, but the Lord. He's saying this is from the Lord. This is from Christ. A wife is not to depart from her husband. She's not to depart. But if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. It appears to me that the, the man knows the instruction, he knows the instruction of the Lord. But there are situations in which a woman and a, and a man who's taking advantage of her or abusing her, where she may need to separate from him. So what is she to do? What well, says that she is to remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband? Why? It appears to me that only in the for, act of fornication is the marriage broken. But here, there's some sense that the marriage could be restored. And the relationship could be reconciled. The things I present to you on this are straight from the Bible. I'm just giving you simply what Jesus said on these matters. And I could share a few more passages, but you're going to hear the same exact thing. Jesus says the same thing in Luke chapter 16 and verse 18. He says the same thing in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9. We find the same teaching throughout the New Testament. And so as Christ is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, this great and amazing sermon, He teaches us, do not look to covet, to lust, because that's adultery in the heart. And He says, and don't, because you would have to be looking for the man who's just going to divorce his wife. Every time he lusts and he looks at another woman and he's coveting for her, he's going to say, well, I don't like my wife. And then he has reason to do what was going on at that time and just put her away and move on to the next. Now today... The statistics show that divorces 70 to 90% of the time are now done by the woman, the wife. Something's going on there. And I think whether the man or a woman may disagree with me this, my observation is that there's coveting going on. I want better. I think I can do better. When the man does it, when the woman does it, different reasons, but it's still coming back to coveting and rebellion against God. Those concerned with obeying God and you love Christ and you listen to his teachings, you want to avoid any part of adultery. You don't want any part of divorce. You don't want a part of lust. You don't want a part of any of this and you don't want it in your heart. You want it to be put away. And God's plan for marriage is this and what we see in the scriptures. Jesus quotes in the book of Genesis and he makes it very clear that marriage is one man and one woman for one life with one exception. I can't make it any simpler than that. You look there in Matthew 19 again and hear Jesus' teaching on the matter. That's the institution. God made them man and woman from the very beginning in creation. They are to be together for one life. There's only one exception for that divorce. Matthew chapter 19, 10 through 12, I think is a fitting passage to think about as we conclude this morning. Oftentimes when I teach on this matter, I get somebody who's angry at me. And I just say, I'm just reading scripture. I'm telling you what Jesus says. Listen to what Jesus' response when his disciples come to him. This is what he says. His disciples hear that they shouldn't divorce their wife for any reason. This is what they say. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying but only those to whom it's been given. And there are some people who won't accept it, but to those who follow Christ and listen to Him, it's been given to you. Listen to Him. 
He loves you and He gives you these commands for a reason. To help you, to guide our lives and to help our homes and our marriages. To give us the stability and to give us the design of the home that He has given us. And then He says this, For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. So there are some who are born who uh, cannot marry because of defect from their birth. And these are men, males. And there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. Okay, Like Daniel in the Bible was made a eunuch. By the Persians, that's what they did. It's in ancient times. And then he says, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. What's he saying here? He's saying, if you cannot marry, if you cannot keep the instructions and the commandments of God, then remain unmarried. He doesn't say make yourself a eunuch. He says, just don't marry. He's again using hyperbole there. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. And that should be the truth. That we accept the words of Christ on these matters. As Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, and I think fitting for our invitation. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to him a man who built his house on the rock. Build your house on the rock in the words of Christ, and not on the sand, not on the world, not on your lust or desires or what your wants are. Build it on Christ, and you'll have that base and foundation toward eternal life. You're being faithful when you do that. This morning, if you want to put on Christ in baptism, you can confess your faith, repent of your sins, be buried in baptism, and rise up and start a new life focused following the teachings of Jesus Christ. If you've struggled and you've fallen away, we want to pray with you and encourage you. We want to encourage you today. uh, Before you leave, whatever your struggles are, find somebody around you to encourage you, to pray with you, to help you, whatever your needs are. Let's stand and let's sing together.